Well, good morning, 11 o'clock. How are you today? Marginal. Uh, it's great to see you here. I'll give you another shot. How are you today? Solid. For those who are in overflow as well right now, we're so glad that you are here. And if you're watching this online at some later date, we're glad that you're wherever you are. Uh, but we are in a teaching series called Four Small Words. My name is Jarrett Stevens, by the way. I'm one of the lead pastors here. And uh, we're talking through this uh, way of looking at the Bible. How do we engage the Bible? And this is really for anyone who, uh, maybe for you, you've been around the Bible for a long time, like your whole life. And maybe because of that, you've kind of lost the point of it all in some of the routines or rituals or that sort of stuff. Or maybe for you, you're like brand new to the Bible, or you're still even trying to figure out if you want to engage the Bible. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by it or intimidated by it. Well, this is really for you as well, because what we're doing is kind of looking at a framework for engaging the Bible, a way of understanding the Bible, uh, so that when we come to it, we can actually better know what it has to say to us about who we are and ultimately about who God is, and so that you can actually have a relationship with God. So we're looking at the Bible. And this is all stuff that came out of a book that I wrote. If you want to kind of dive in deeper, you can definitely check that out today. But I want to just uh, highlight this stuff really quick for you. And we're going to walk through the, the four small words, the four main movements of the Bible. And so if we can throw those up on the screen, awesome. Uh, the first word is, everyone say it out loud, of. of. And that means that you're created in the image of God. That's the first movement in the story of the Bible. It's the shortest. It's easy. It's right there at the beginning, that your soul has a source, that you were actually created in the image of God. Whether you know him or not, that's actually already true of you. And then the second word is between. That starts in Genesis 3. Oh, I'm sorry. What's the second word? I, I stole your thunder. I apologize. <laughs> between. And that's how sin comes between us and God. And that happens at the end of the Garden of Eden and carries out through the rest of the Old Testament. You can put your finger at any point in the Old Testament and you'll find the story of a people between, between the garden and between Jesus, where sin comes between them and God and how God continues to come between us and our sin. Third word is with. That's God with us. And that's the gospel accounts. We looked at that last week. We're going to close that out today. God actually enters himself into the story. He makes himself the ultimate go-between by coming to be with you and I, and then ultimately giving his life for us so that we could know him. Last word is in. And that starts right after the gospel accounts and it's the rest of the New Testament. So anytime you're reading anything in the New Testament, that is a picture of what life is like when you get that God is in you. That he's no longer out there somewhere that we hope to maybe reach with our prayers if we throw him really far enough. That he's actually in you when you enter into a relationship with him. He's in you. And that changes everything. And so that's the whole story of the Bible. So give yourselves a hand. You know the whole Bible right there. You got it all figured out. And what we're going to do is just dive into this word a little bit today. This word with. And we're going to look at specifically the life of Jesus. The one who came to be with us by looking through the lens of his followers. We're going to look at Jesus by looking through the lens of his followers, those who first followed him, those he called his friends and spent the last three years of his life with. And he would eventually hand over the keys to the kingdom of God, if you will. He would hand over to these folks. And we're going to look at one word that they have to teach us today. Not one of these words on the board. It's a new word. I think you can handle it. One new word that changed their lives changed their view of Jesus, and changed actually history as we know it. And we're going to practice saying this word 
all throughout the course of this next week. We're all going to learn one simple word today that we can walk out with that has the power to actually change your life as well. Before we get to that, though, in the passages we're going to look at, I want to actually just do a little quiz. I want to kind of see where you're at and what you know, because we're going to be talking about the followers of Jesus, his kind of team that he had around him in the very beginning. I thought it'd be good for us to just kind of test your knowledge of the greatest teams in the history of the world. I'm going to put up on the screen here in a moment a couple teams. This is going to be a video daily double uh, that you're going to have. You don't have to answer in the form of a question, but you do need to answer to the person next to you and see between the two of you who can name the team the fastest. Does that make sense? So I want you to turn to the person next to you. Make sure you know their name. Everyone know the name of the person next to you. Do you know their name? All right. And that's sweet. Now I want you to look them back in the eyes and I want you to say by their name, hey, so-and-so, it's about to go down. I want you to say that right to them. Just let them know. All friendliness is off. This is what we do in church, just some healthy competition. All right, are you ready? Eyes on the screen. Who can name this team the fastest? Which bears? 85 bears. That's right. You got to get it right. So see, hopefully you knew that. You got to know. The Super Bowl Shuffle. Who is this? Oh, good. Well, it's written. But who, can you name these players? See if you can name these players. Yes. Jordan. Rodman. Pippen. There were others, but really, let's be honest. All right. And I would love to have shown a more recent picture of the Bulls and the Bears, but not, not so for us. But I, I do want to show you another one of the greatest teams of all time. Let's put them up real quick. Yeah. Blackhawks. Now, thank God for the Blackhawks because they helped us stop celebrating victories 20 and 30 years ago. We actually have a more recent victory and a great team to celebrate. And at the 8 a.m., the first gathering this morning, I forgot uh, to put this picture up. And you would have thought I slapped the Pope. Like, you would have thought <laughs> I had committed some unforgivable sin. So we, we want to honor and celebrate them. And they gave us a reason to celebrate something within the last decade. Uh, and I know, I know, okay, White Sox fans know you're like, hey, we got one too. Yeah, totally. We recognize you. We see you. Um, good job with that. And, you know, Cubs fans, you know, we'll, we're praying for you. We're just going to keep on holding out hope one day, and, and you're praying for me? Good. That's awesome. I appreciate that. Well, all right, so let me just put one more up on the screen and see if, how fast you can name them. Ah, it's a Bible joke. All right, I got you. It's the disciples. That's not really a team, although they did have jerseys. You just don't read about that in the Bible. This is uh, the disciples at the Last Supper, all right? So this is a famous painting that has them all together in one moment. And we're not going to talk about that painting, but we are going to talk about the people depicted in it, the disciples, this team of people that Jesus surrounded himself with, the greatest team in the history of the world because what they accomplished had far outlived their lives, far outlived their lives. In fact, you are here today because of that team. You're here today because of a bunch of people that history had never heard of. We're still talking about 2,000 years later. So what do they have to teach us about Jesus? And what do they have to teach us about us? So I want you to grab a Bible, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And while you're turning there, if you brought your own Bible, fantastic. If not, we've got you covered. There should be a gray Bible in your seat back. Why don't you grab one of the gray Bibles and you can grab a note card if you have questions or thoughts or you want to take notes down. Or maybe you're in a small group where we're talking about this stuff right now and you want to write some questions down. You can do that as well. So grab a Bible, a pen, a note card, all that stuff. Uh, should be there right in front of you. And you can turn to Luke chapter 6. It's page 720, by the way, in the Gray Bible. Let me give you some quick context as to what's going on 
Jesus is in the early stages of his public ministry. So this is very beginning of what would be the last three years of his life. We talked a little bit about this last week, how we don't have a lot of record of the previous 20, you know, 7, 28, 30 years of his life, but the last three years we have a lot about. And so this is the beginning of that. He had done some teaching uh, and he had really kind of, the crowd had grown around him. They were following him from town to town and hoping to hear from him, hoping that he would perform a miracle, a teaching or something. And so there was a crowd that had had gathered around Jesus. And as the crowds continued to grow, uh, so grew his focus and what he knew what he was about, his mission here on earth. And so he knew that from that crowd, he would need to kind of whittle it down to a inner core of folks that he could pour his life into, live his life with, and then ultimately hand over the keys to the kingdom and trust them to lead the movement after his death and resurrection. And so this is the process by which Jesus goes about to choose those first followers. Now, I just want you to hit pause for a second. A lot of talk about teams and how to build a great team and how do we build a dynasty or legacy team here in Chicago right now, their sports teams. But I want you just to pause and think at a bigger picture right now. If you were entrusted with the history of the church in the world, who would you pick? Like, how would you stock that team? What kind of characteristics, qualities would you look for? If you knew that you were about to build something that was far going to outlast your life on earth, that would have impact over billions of people's lives for thousands of years to come, how would you go about picking and placing people on that team? Well, what we see from Jesus is that he did what any one of us would do. He went to LinkedIn and he pulled up his profile and he started looking through (laughs) folks in his network and then he got some really great resumes from them and then he brought in a consultant to make sure everyone would be a good fit for the team. Actually, that's not at all what he did. I want us to look at what he did and it's found in verse 12, Luke 6, verse 12. This is what Jesus did. It says, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent how long? The night praying to God. I want to pause right there just for a second. Jesus is about to make a very important decision. Jesus is about to pull from the crowd his followers, which would ultimately be the leaders of the first church. And rather than kind of going through his pros and cons list or kind of laying all their bios out on the table and kind of doing it that way, he decides the best thing for him to do is to pull away from the crowd pull away from their demands, pull away from the clamor and the noise of it all to go actually to a remote place and to be alone with God for the night. To just stay, stop, listen, wait for God. And there's actually several points in the gospel accounts where we see Jesus do this. At major ministry moments, significant decisions he needed to make, he would pull away from the crowd, go to a private place, and would spend the night praying. Now, this is just, notice, this is not one of those kind of like, hey, God, I need you on my side kind of prayers, you know, because I'm still going to do what I want to do anyway, but I just want to check in to make sure you're cool with it. Hopefully you bless it, those kind of prayers. We all pray those kind of prayers. I'm going to do this anyway. I'm just letting you know about it, God, so it's on your agenda. This is not that. This is a deliberate discerning from God, a pulling away and a listening to. And I'm telling you, for the big decisions in my life and in our life, and for the times that I've gone about this approach, rather than just kind of getting consensus and pros and cons lists, but really listening to God, I thank God that I did. I think about when we started this church, you know, we had this idea to start this church. We were living down in Atlanta and had this dream, this vision that we felt was from God. And 
my tendency is to go and kind of talk it out. I talk to think. And so, you know, I want to talk to my friends. What do they think? Folks who've done this before want to kind of get some ideas, get some insight, get some information, right? That's, that's what the draw was for me. But what I knew what God was inviting me to do was to follow the example of Jesus and to shut my mouth and to open my ears and to open my heart and just listen and not try and rush to fill in the blanks for God. And so for 30 days, Gene and I had this vision burning in us and we didn't tell a single person. We just sat with it with God. And I thank God that I did because I can get so drawn in by the noise, by the crowd, by the clamor, by opinion, by other people's perspectives. I mean, just this last weekend, Gene and I were feeling it. Easter's coming up, exciting season of ministry for our church and just feeling more noise than clarity from God. And so we pulled our kids out of school on Friday and we drove out to our friends, the Towners Retreat Center. And so we stayed in their home. These are folks that did our premarital counseling, listen to me, 21 years ago. These folks have been in our lives. We were 12 at the time, but they've been in our lives for many years, seen us through every major decision. And here's the great thing. We didn't even have a major decision to make. We just wanted to hear from God. We wanted to be still and pull away. And so we did. We went away for about 36 hours and we went on walks and just sat and listened and had some conversations and then sat in quiet. And it was, I needed it. My hunches you do too. So here we see in the example of Jesus, he pulls away, but then he comes to making a decision. And so we're going to look at verse 13. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them whom he also designated as apostles. Now these words, disciples and apostles kind of get interchanged uh, lots of times in the New Testament. Let me just quickly explain this to you. A disciple is a follower, someone who submits themselves to the teaching of. An apostle is a leader who then becomes a leader of that. So disciple would be a follower of Jesus. Apostle would be one who's entrusted with the authority to lead. And so he goes on to say, Luke uh, captures for us all those who were there. Simon, who he named, Peter, Jesus has a way of renaming people. Seriously, it's in the Bible. Check it out. So he called him Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, moving right along, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, a.k.a. the other Simon, moving right along. Uh, and then we get to Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So if the Bible had sound effects, it would be dun-dun-dun at that moment because that's a, a little foreshadowing of what was to come. Quick word on this Judas, just so you know, because you thought, oh, I thought there was only one Judas. That seems a little weird. And they obviously wanted to make the point to differentiate between the two. This Judas is also known as Jude or also Thaddeus. Goes kind of by a couple different names. So in a couple translations, he's called Jude or Thaddeus. And it's actually really great for him because after what this Judas does, uh, terrible to have that name on your business card. And so good for him. He had a couple options there. Okay, so we get through this list, and I know what you're thinking. You just saw these 12 names of these folks, and those are just the first followers. There are other men and women, very important note, and women that Jesus called to follow him and played a significant role in his leadership equally among them, right? But this is the first apostles that we see called to Jesus there, and I know what you thought when I just read that list to you. You said, thank you, God, for that insight. I get it, Lord. I see what you're saying to me through those 12 random names right? I, my hunch is that's not what you said, because my hunch is more like, oh, cool, another list of names in the Bible. <laughs> There's lots of those, right? So what does that mean? It's like, awesome. Jesus has enough guys for a men's church softball team. Awesome. That's great. What does it mean? Well, without knowing some of their backstory, and we don't know a ton of their backstory, you may miss the whole point of why it's so significant who Jesus called to be with him and who he entrusted 
his kingdom, his will, his way, this church too. Now the reason you don't know a ton about him is because there's not a lot to know. None of these folks were noteworthy. None of these folks were headliners. None of these folks were top shelf candidates. None of the folks that Jesus chose uh, had any sort of social significance or standing to speak of. None of them was a religious leader in their culture. That it, see, that would make sense. If you were thinking about building a religious organization or a thing like the church, you'd want someone who knew some stuff about that. Not a single one of them. He did have a religious zealot, kind of a political zealot, a guy who just wanted to occupy everything. Jesus actually had one of those in his squad as well. And so you've got kind of all these different folks, but none of them had any sort of qualifications that would put them to the top of the list at all. And that's why you don't know a ton about them. But there is something that they all had in common that we're going to look at here in a moment. In fact, what I love is that a few short years later, four or five years later, uh, in the book of Acts, you don't need to turn there, in Acts chapter four, there's a, a moment where someone notes this reality about these disciples who became apostles that like, who are these guys? Like that kind of thing. And it actually got into the Bible. And so don't turn there, but in Acts chapter 4, uh, 13, you get this sort of Yelp review of a couple of these guys uh, whose names we just saw. And it says this about them after preaching about a resurrected Jesus and speaking against the powers and authorities and the abuse of power in that day and facing their own opposition. Uh, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, the guys we just read about, and realized that they were, what's the words? Unschooled and ordinary men, ordinary people. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I love this because someone's saying, those guys? How, them? Really? And I love that it even makes it into the Bible. They looked at Peter and John and went, uh, these are some of the least qualified folks to be holding the positions that they're holding. Seriously, someone should have been with Jesus when he was screening them. But here's the difference. Unschooled ordinary, by our social standards and requirements of all that kind of stuff, they did not make the list. But there was one thing that set them apart. They'd been with Jesus. And I pray to God, on my best days, that's what I want to be said of me. Now, on my not so best days, do I want people to say, oh, he was a dynamic communicator, sure. Do I want people to say, oh, he was a great writer? Yeah, say it again. I love that stuff. <laughs> Do I want that? Sure. Oh, he had such an amazing ability to coordinate black on black outfits. Never seen anyone do it like him. Do I want? Sure. Of course. They're right. But the truth, at the end of my life and every day until then, if I'm being really, really honest, I just want them to say, I don't know what it was about him, but he was with Jesus. He was with Jesus. Gave his life to follow him. And he didn't have it all figured out. And it didn't always work out. But he was with Jesus through thick and thin, through it all. Nothing special about him, but he had been with Jesus. And my hunch is maybe you would want that said of you too. That's what they saw. That's what they noticed about these unschooled, ordinary men. They had been with Jesus. Again, nothing special about them. And I think what's so interesting is not just 
that Jesus chose to have followers and do life with him. Although that is, just so you know, that's a lot. Because he could have very easily just come in and been sort of a solo savior. Just kind of floated down from heaven and be like, listen to me, I'm the one, it's all about me. He could have done that, right? He could have easily done that. Kind of been an independent salvation coordinator, contractor. Could have done all that on his own, but he didn't. He actually chose to live life with people. He actually chose to literally not just have them as followers, but friends. To share meals with them, to share highs and lows, joys, tears, loss, miracles, mundane. He shared it all with them. And that would be enough. But then when you get to understanding who these folks are and how totally unqualified we would assume that they were, then you get the little, the bigger story that's going on here. And so I want to just quickly take you to a passage where we get to zoom in a little bit on one of these moments of calling. Then I want to give you this word that changed their lives and I believe can change uh, your life as well. So again, jump to the left in your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 4. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 4, it's on page 677. We're going to look at a moment of calling just quickly here and then a couple takeaways for each of us. Matthew chapter 4, 677. This is kind of a more zoomed in look at one of those moments of calling that Jesus had with four of the guys that we just read about on that list. And so let's look at some of the details and look for ourselves actually in this story. This is what it says. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. And I've actually had the privilege to be on the Sea of Galilee, to walk its shores, one of my favorite places in the world. And so I can see Jesus walking there. And he saw two brothers and they were Simon. His other name was Peter. See, I told you, Jesus renames people. Uh, and Andrew. So these are brothers, Simon and Andrew. They were putting a net into the sea for they were fishermen, which makes sense. That's what you do when you're a fisherman. And then look what it says in the next verse. Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fish for men. At once, it says, they left their nets, and they followed him. Isn't that interesting? Jesus comes to where they are and uses even a metaphor that they would be familiar with. I see that you're fishermen. Here's the deal. I want to give you greater purpose. You're going to fish for men. You're going to see lives literally brought into loving relationship with God. You're going to be a part of a movement of God, a catch like you have never even possibly imagined before. He started where they were at and gave them a vision and a picture of what life could be like with him if they would follow him. And what I love that we see in this is these two words, at once. Because so often, my hunch is maybe you're similar to me when you maybe sense a little prompting or direction. What's the first thing you want to do? You want to get advice. You want to check it out with others. You want to have some others speak into it. Weigh your options. We don't see them going, okay, follow you. What's your benefit package? How long am I going to follow you for? What if while following you, I want to follow someone else? Is there a penalty? Like you don't see them because the truth is, if Jesus would have laid it out, he said, well, here's kind of what's going to happen. A lot of people are going to hate you. A lot of people aren't going to understand you. Many of you are going to be imprisoned and persecuted. And several of you are going to be killed for my sake. <laughs> I don't think they would be jumping out of the boat at that moment. Here's all he promised them in that moment. His power and his presence. That was the best deal they were ever going to get. So at once, not after some negotiating, not after trying to figure it out how they can get it onto their own terms. At once, they left everything, careers, comfort, familiarity, predictability. They left it all and said, this is the best deal we're ever going to get. This one. And 
scholars believe that they had been around or had some exposure to Jesus' teaching at this point. They'd maybe heard his messages. They'd heard what he was about. They saw his life and they said, there's no better offer we're going to get in our lifetime than this one who's already said yes to us. But that's not it. Moving right along in the passage, verse 21, it says, going from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, just brothers everywhere on the shores. There's two other brothers. And they were James and John, sons of Zebedee. And they were sitting in a boat with their father, a.k.a. Zebedee, mending their nets. Okay, so he's kind of going about their work. They're also fishermen. And the same thing happens. It says, Jesus called them. Now, there's some very important details in this verse that Matthew, who wrote this, actually was someone who we have an account of Jesus calling him to follow Jesus as well. So here we have the author of this passage was someone who Jesus said, follow me. And he said, yes. So he's recording this moment. He wants you to get something very important that James and John were actually there with their father when Jesus called them. And then going on to verse 22, it says it pretty plain and simple. At once they left their boat and who? their father and follow Jesus. Now, why does Matthew want you to pay attention to that? Because in that culture, in that day, business was family business. You didn't kind of go out looking for a job. You had a job. If you were a son, typically in that culture, in that day, the family business was passed down from generation to generation through father to son, father to son, father to son. And here's Zebedee with his sons, James and John. They were going to take over the family fishing business for him. It was all laid out. It was all simple, just like his father had done before, his grandfather had done before him. And James and John received the invitation from Jesus. And they have to look their dad in the eyes and say, Dad, this is the greatest offer we're ever going to get in our life. Nothing better than this. And so they broke family plans. They broke family expectations, maybe even obligations. Because there was a greater calling on their life than just family. Family is incredibly important, valuable. I have kids. I think it's very valuable. But I am preparing them for a calling greater than their relationship to me and to Jeannie. And they got that in this moment, that God said, through Jesus, follow me. And they left their family to follow him. And each one of them had a different account of how they said yes to Jesus. And each one of them was radically different in their own way. But they did have this one thing in common, this one thing that they had in common. Every single one of these first followers of Jesus was willing. They were willing to follow Jesus. Jesus' invitation, come follow me, leave your life of predictability and comfort and come follow me and I will lead you into the greatest adventure of your life. Every single one of them had one word in common and that word is yes. They just said yes. Yes, didn't have it all laid out, didn't have it all figured out, certainly didn't seem worthy of the calling, but Jesus saw something in them that they may not have even seen in themselves. And when the invitation came, the prompting came, the nudge came, they said, yes, that word changed everything in their life, changed history, and it's why we're talking about them today. Because they said, yes. God's best for them, for their life, was on the other side of their yes. All that we would have to talk about their lives was on the other side of their yes. And the same is true for you, and the same is true for me. It's just one of those kind of fundamental faith truths that God's best for you begins with a yes from you. 
God's best for your life begins with a yes from you saying, yes, okay, I will follow you. I will trust you. I will obey. I will do it. It always begins with your yes. God's best begins with your yes. It's as though God's will and your willingness are more intertwined than you might even know. His will and your willingness are more intertwined than you might even realize. And so the question is, will you say yes to him, to whatever it is? Will you say yes? Now, maybe if you're like, I don't know how to do that. I'm kind of new to this. Or, man, I said yes to God before and it messed everything up. I don't know if I want to do that again. Got to change my life. Well, let me encourage you with something. And it's a truth that you already actually are awesome at this. You're already awesome at saying yes to God. You just don't realize it. Here's why I know this. Because you're already awesome at saying yes to just about everything else. We say yes to hundreds of things every day, many of which you don't even realize you're saying yes to. Let's just walk through this real quickly. All the ways that you're already awesome at saying yes. Think about at work. For those of us who have a job, how many times in a day do you have to say yes? Say yes to your boss, even though you know it means, oh my gosh, it means I'm gonna have to stay an hour later. Or it's gonna be 10 more hours of work this week, right? But you say yes because you wanna be in there. Good graces, you wanna move forward, you wanna move ahead. At work, you say yes to company politics. You don't agree with it and you had all your reasons why you think it's wrong that they do it this way and you're waiting for your Jerry Maguire moment. But until then, you're gonna continue to say yes because you know that's kind of how it has to work to play by the rules in this organization. You say yes maybe to work hours that aren't actually sustainable, healthy or sustainable, but because you want to keep this job or because you're not sure what else you want to do, you continue to say, see, we're already awesome at saying yes. Then when you get home from work, you're already awesome at saying yes to something else. A lot of folks in this room, certainly not everyone, but a lot of folks in this room are awesome at saying yes to Netflix. I mean, you are a master at saying yes to Netflix. You love saying yes to Netflix. And then you say it Again, and then you say yes to one more episode, and then you say yes to the last episode before you have to go to work the next day. You are already awesome at saying yes, right? We're already saying yes to a hundred different things in a day. Maybe you're already awesome at saying yes to old habits and patterns that have plagued your life. And for some reason, even though against your better judgment, you keep saying yes to them. Maybe for you, it's old family habits or patterns, right? It's this obligation, like there's these written set of rules for your family. You don't even know who wrote them, but everyone plays by them in your family. And because you're afraid of breaking the rules or hurting someone's feelings or making someone act cray, you continue to play along with these rules. And every time you say yes to an unhealthy expectation or to an old habit or an old pattern that has to do with their stuff and is keeping you from being fully alive in Christ, you are just saying yes to another thing that is keeping you actually from life to the fullest. Or maybe for you, it's, a, it's like one of, it's a, a hidden habit or addiction. And this is, again, I, if that's you, you know about this, all of us have them. You know about sitting at the negotiation tables with God. You've tried to negotiate this one for a while. Like, man, God, I want your best. I, I still just want to hold on to this a little bit longer. I still want to hold out into this relationship a little bit longer. I know it's not healthy, but it's fun. God, did you know how fun it is? So you know all about what it means to say yes to something that's actually keeping you from life, taking life from you. And maybe for you, it has to do with drinking and that there's a really thin line between 
one last drink and one more drink. Or maybe for you, it's you say yes when everyone else in the house has gone to bed. See, we're already awesome at saying yes. The problem is we so often don't say yes to God's best for us. And the more I say yes to those things, and the more I say yes to those things, and you say yes to those things, the harder and harder and harder it gets to say yes to God, to recognize his voice and invitation for him. What would it look like for you this week to say yes to him, to actually say yes to Jesus this week? We got a powerful picture of this this last week. I don't know if you were here, but we celebrated baptism and we had a bunch of folks in the tank and we it was so fun because we had about a small handful of folks that had planned to be baptized. Like they filled out the forms and played by the rules and did it all right. But then we just opened up the water. We said, anyone who wants to get baptized, who wants to say yes to Jesus, just come to the water today. I don't know if you were here last weekend. It was a powerful weekend to see people in real time come forward and say yes to Jesus, to see the heartfelt emotion, the joy from folks and their face, to see how people took the moment seriously and got what was going on, to know that there's a story that led up to every single yes, and there's a greater story to come. We got a window of what it looks like to say yes at once last week. And last week in our church, we baptized in one Sunday, 28 people in one Sunday here at Soul City Church last weekend, which is pretty awesome. And so the question for you today is this. We're not doing surprise baptisms today, so don't worry about that. Save that for later. How will you say yes to God this week? How will you say yes to God this week? Now, you may not be a, wouldn't call yourself a religious person, a Christian, per, a Christian person at all, right? So you're like, do I have to say yes to God? I don't know. No, that's not actually, it's actually not for you. And here's what I want to celebrate about you. If that's you, uh, awesome. You actually said yes to God because you're here today. You just may not have realized it. There's a prompting, a nudge for you to get here, or someone just dragged you here. And in a way, you said yes. And I want to give you an invitation to a yes that will change your life in just a moment, if that's you. But for those of you who say, you know, I'm in a relationship with Jesus, I'm following it. How do I say yes this week? So I want to encourage you. What are the little ways that you can say yes this week? How can you begin to practice saying yes this week? When it, maybe when you get a little nudge, a little prompting this week, you ever had one of those things where like someone's name pops into your head? And you're not even totally sure why, or you just find yourself feeling for someone in your world. Okay, that's an invitation from God for you to say yes. Let's just treat it as such this week. What would it look like for you to reach out to them? To call them? Or maybe you already know that there's a friend of yours that's in a really tough season. They're battling infertility right now, and your heart just breaks for every part of the process for them. Or someone you know is lost someone that they love or they're watching over someone in the hospital, that's an opportunity for you to say yes. And I know you're worried that you don't have the right words. You're not going to know what to say. Guess what? Neither did those first followers. They just knew how to say one word the right way. Yes. Y'all call them. Y'all show up. I'll take them a meal. I'll reach out. You can say yes. And my hunch is before the sun sets today, you're going to have a little nudge or a little prompting from God to reach out to someone and say yes. Just a little way for you to obey and say yes to God today. Maybe for you, it has to do with a conversation with someone at work about God and you've kind of been tiptoeing around and you're not sure how to really have it and you're nervous about saying it wrong. You're worried that you don't have all the right answers. So here's a great invitation for you. Just ask some questions get to know their story, 
say yes to building a loving relationship with them because they matter to God. And therefore, they matter to you. Or maybe for you, it's inviting someone to our Easter gatherings and you've been wanting to do it. And so a small way for you to say yes today is like, no, I'm actually going to do it. I'm going to text them right when I leave here because I know I'm going to forget or I'm going to kind of put it on the back shelf. So I'm going to do one of those at once things and text them right away. And then I'm going to get a ticket for them and reserve it by faith in their name because I believe that this person needs to be here and hear about this unbelievable love of Jesus. Or maybe you can say yes today by signing up to serve it the big find. What a fun way for us to spread love and to be for the love of God by throwing a party for our neighborhood. And you've kind of heard us talk about those things in the past. You're like, oh yeah, I should do that one day. Well, what if you just said yes today? And you just did it right now today before you left church. And just see what it feels like to live on the other side of yes. To see what God does when you live on the other side of yes and you say yes to him. Look, I'm going to tell you something really honest from my life. I'll kind of look back over my life, preparing my thoughts for this weekend. I can't think of a single yes yet that I regret. A single yes yet that I've said to God that I regret. Haven't always been easy. Haven't always been comfortable. Haven't always been as I've planned. I can't think of a yes that I've said to God that I regret to this day. Now I have a lot of no's that I regret. I have a lot of hold on, maybe, let me figure it out, gods, that I wish I would have acted sooner on. I can't think of a yes that I regret. So I want to ask you to stand up right now, and we're going to have a moment to say yes and to respond to God together. And I just want to offer a prayer for anyone who wants to say yes to Jesus today. I'm going to offer a prayer. You can literally copy and paste my words for your heart right now. And if you want to say yes to Jesus, I just don't want you to miss the opportunity to have the invitation to say yes to him. And maybe you've been kind of figuring this thing out for a while now, and you're not even sure why you haven't said yes yet. I want to encourage you today to say yes to Jesus and to begin to live on the other side of your yes and to experience God's best that he has for you. So I ask you to close your eyes. We're going to pray together right now. And if you, again, want to, you can follow along in this prayer with me. And it's a simple prayer. It says this, Jesus, I confess that I'm a mess. And I've brought all my sin and brokenness into this world. And I've brought it with me up to this point. And I can't do enough good to match your holiness. And I'm exhausted. And I need you. And so today, Jesus, I say yes to you. I say yes to the cross and what you did there for me. I say yes to an empty tomb where you sealed the deal and defeated sin and death once and for all. I say yes to life with you in this world. And I say yes to life with you when this world is gone. I say yes to you today, Jesus. Help me to follow you. But today I am willing and I say yes. And God, I thank you for every person who just said yes to you and entered into relationship with you. That's only possible because Jesus, you said yes to God and you said yes to the cross, joyfully took it upon yourself. And you said yes to defeating sin and death at the tomb because you said yes, we get to say yes to you today, Jesus. And I pray that would be true of our church, that we would be a bunch of people that the world would look at and go, I don't get it, I don't see it, but it sure seems like these folks have been with Jesus. 
These are just some ordinary, unschooled, everyday folks who just keep saying yes to him in big ways and small ways. And so help us to be that kind of church that keeps on saying yes to you, Jesus, that the world may know who you are because of our yes. We pray in your name. Amen.